0: Welcome to my mommy's podcast.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Flying Embers, a better for you alcohol brand that brews hard kombucha with probiotic powered hard seltzer. All of their products are zero sugar, zero carbs, USDA certified organic, and brewed with live probiotics and adaptogens. They're also all keto, gluten-free, vegan, and low in calories. So they're a great option for a functional low calorie, drink that is delicious i love their flavors they have some really unique ones like grapefruit thyme and guava jalapeno and i'm a big fan of their clementine hibiscus all of their products are artfully crafted with a dry fermentation process which gives the hard kombucha a perfectly balanced natural sweetness that tastes amazing despite having zero sugar and carbs we've worked out an exclusive deal just for you receive 15 percent off your whole order to claim this deal, go to flyingembers.com forward slash wellnessmama and use code wellnessmama at checkout. That's F-L-Y-I-N-G-E-M-B-E-R-S dot com slash wellnessmama. And the discount is only available on their website will be applied at checkout. Um, they're also available nationwide at grocery stores, anywhere you find beer and hard seltzers. But check out where to find them and get the discount flyingembers.com. Forward slash wellness mama. This podcast is brought to you by Wellness, my new personal care company that is based on the recipes I've been making at home in my own kitchen for over a decade. Many clean products simply don't work. And this is exactly why I spent the last decade researching and perfecting recipes for products that not only eliminate toxic chemicals, but that contain ingredients that work better than their conventional alternatives and that nourish your body from the outside in. I'm so excited to finally get to share these products with you. And I wanted to tell you all about our brand new dry shampoo, which is our newest product. It can be used various ways, including you can sprinkle in clean hair to add volume and also extend the time between washes. You can sprinkle it in uh, hair that hasn't been washed in a day or two to absorb oil or sweat. And you can work it into color treated hair to maintain color by not having to wash as often. It contains oil-absorbing kale and clay and volume-boosting tapioca, which work together to refresh hair at the roots. Lavender oil and cactus flower help to balance the scalp and to keep the hair's natural pH. And we added hibiscus for healthy hair growth. You can check it out and try it at wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end. And my tip is to grab a bundle and save with the built-in discount that comes with a bundle. Or if you subscribe and save, you can save on any order. So again, check it out, wellness.com. Hello, and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and wellness.com, that's wellness with an E on the end. my new line of personal care products like our mineral-rich toothpaste that helps support your healthy oral microbiome and our hair food, hair care, shampoo, conditioner, and dry shampoo that nourish your scalp and your follicles for healthier hair over time. I'm here today with an author who really changed the way I thought about health and nutrition years and years ago, Gary Taubes. He's the author of books like Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, and Good Calories, Bad Calories, and now The Case for Keto, which we delve into today. What the specifics of that look like. He's an award-winning science and health journalist and author, and I really love how he really deep dives into the um, the data and looks at what it's actually saying. Doesn't get caught up in a lot of the kind of trendy health information that's out there. And he has for years been talking about these unprecedented epidemics we're seeing of chronic disease, obesity and diabetes. And we go deep on this today. I think it's especially timely knowing that metabolic conditions put us at increased risk from any other kind of illness or chronic condition as well, especially, of course, timely this year um, with everything else currently going on. And we really go into the specifics of that today and what the data actually says about how to reverse these conditions over the long term, how to protect yourself now and reduce your risk of complications and problems from them so much, so much information in this episode. I think you'll learn a lot. I know I did. So without further ado, let's jump in. Gary, welcome. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Well, thank you, Katie, for having me.
1: I'm so excited to chat with you. In fact, you were one of the authors I read very early on when I got into the health and wellness world, and your books, Why We Get Fat and Good Calories, Bad Calories, really kind of were paradigm shifting for me and changed the way I thought about food and nutrition, and I think have changed the conversation of how many of us in this world think about food and nutrition. Um, I also think that these are extremely timely topics that get more and more so with all of the things going on right now, and you now have your new book, which is The Case for Keto, and I want to really go deep on this today, too, because I get so many questions related to this, and I think you might be the most qualified person I know to answer them, but to start off with, um, Talk about why you decided to write this book, because you have written extensively in the past. Your books, I highly recommend all of them. But why did you feel this book was so important, especially right now?
0: Well, I think um, when I see the discussion, let me backtrack even a little further. Um, You know, I I got into this 20 years ago uh, as a journalist with no preconceived opinions and um, my conclusions in Good Calories, Bad Calories, which was about seven years of work, was that, you know, the nutrition, obesity, chronic disease research community, right, had made a lot of mistakes. This, is when you talk about the sort of paradigm shifting aspect of that book, for which, thank you for those words, by the way. What I ended up concluding was that we had made a lot of mistakes, and that there had to be a sort of huge fix, for individuals to get healthy and for Americans to get healthy and people around the world to kind of cure these metabolic disorders that have become so common. And as I've continued writing about that, the world has indeed shifted. So these arguments are are more and more being taken seriously. Uh, One of the points I make when I lecture on this now is back in 2000, when I first started writing about it, there might have been a dozen physicians in America who prescribe these low carb, high fat ketogenic diets to their obese and uh, patients with obesity and and type two diabetes to try and fix this metabolic problem. And today, my estimate is there are probably a few tens of thousands worldwide. So this is a sort of small proportion of all physicians, clearly, but it's a huge, absolute increase in the number of doctors who have bought into this way of thinking. But there's still a lot of misconceptions in the way the media discusses it, in the way a lot of physicians discuss it, in the way the people in general think about these problems. And I just thought what we need now is a book that can kind of put all this in context, put it in a historical context, put it in a scientific context, and kind of teach people how to think about these problems and how to think about eating. If they're among the, you know, half of all Americans who struggle with their weight and struggle with their blood sugar. So that was sort of the goal is to to give advice to, to originally the title of the book was what I wanted it to be called was how to think about how to eat. Because I just think that the nutrition and obesity communities have been so misguided over the years that they've got they've embraced a whole host of ways about thinking from you know the, the idea that you have to eat less and exercise more to control your weight to uh, line. I hear a lot the diet that works is a diet that we can stick with um, without ever actually defining what happens. You know what you would expect from a diet that works, other than being able to adhere to it. So all these misconceptions, I wanted to try and set straight as as much as you know I can do it with the soapbox that I've
1: got. Yeah, I love that, and I think there's so many important points in that. Um, and I think this book is such a good follow up to your previous books as well. And right now we're hearing so much about metabolic health and all these chronic conditions like obesity and diabetes because they are relevant to health outcomes. Of course, we're finding out when people get other types of illnesses, which this year especially has become very top of mind for a lot of people. But I think to go back to some of the points you make in your earlier books, for anyone not familiar, like you said, we're told that the obesity epidemic is because we're eating too much and we're not moving enough. And in fact, it seems like people who carry extra weight, it's like it's viewed as a character flaw or a moral failing of some sort, some sort of lack of self- Control. And you really explain this, I think, in the most clear and comprehensive way I've ever seen. But walk us through what is the real difference between lean people and obese people? Is it just self control, or what's really going on?
0: Okay. So, this is one of the points I'm hammering on in this book. And I've, I've, I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't hammer on it enough in good calories, bad calories. So the conventional thinking on obesity is that it is a disorder of energy balance. And we hear this all the time, calories in minus calories out. If you get fat, it's because you've in more energy than you expend. And the implication of this is that the difference between those of us who get fat and those of us who stay lean is simply how much we eat. And you can see this, again, in the the history of the field going back to the 1930s. where So as soon as researchers decided that obesity was, you know, caused by overeating, taking in more energy than we expend, they completely ignored all the physiological hormonal mechanisms that regulate how much fat we accumulate. So the point I make in this book is that you know, our fat accumulation, I've done it in the past as well, and I'm making it again stronger here, is that, you know, for instance, if somebody gains 30 years between high school and and middle age, 30 pounds between high school and middle age, so 30 pounds in 30 years, that means they're storing about 10 calories of fat in their fat tissue, that their friends who stay lean, 10 calories every day that their friends who stay lean are not storing. So when people talk about what to do to fix obesity, and they say you should eat 500 calories less or whatever, or you're getting fat because you're eating too much, what they're talking about is this very, very, very subtle day-to-day accumulation of calories in your fat tissue that that isn't burned. And the way I describe in the book is you know, every day, if you eat, say, 2,000, 2,500 calories a day, which is actually a little less than average for the typical American, you're going to store about 1,000 calories of fat in your fat tissue. So you you eat this fat, it gets stored in your fat tissue, and then over the course of the day and the night, it comes back out of your fat tissue and is used for fuel, used to to provide energy to your cells. So for those of us who get fat, 1,000 calories every day goes into our fat tissue, and maybe only 990 or 980 come back out. And what we're trying to do is get the the other 10 or 20 out. And you could do it, you could try to do it by starving yourself, which is a conventional wisdom, or exercising for an hour a day, which is a conventional wisdom. Or you could study the, look at the hormones and enzymes, and again, these physiological mechanisms that regulate this process of fat going into your fat cells and fat coming out of your fat cells. And you could fix that. And so the argument is obesity is not its not an energy balance disorder. It's not about how much you eat and exercise. It's a hormonal disorder. And those of us who struggle with our weight, we've always kind of known this, or we should have known this. You know, if you have children who are overweight or obese, it's clear that they're not just they're not like their thin friends but they eat too much they're just fundamentally different from their thin friends and the way they're fundamentally different is they tend to accumulate fat and thin people do not and so i'm trying to bring this conversation back to this understanding that fat people people who who become obese are profoundly different than people who remain lean and it's not about how much they eat and exercise it's about what their bodies Try to do, want to do with the food they do eat. Do, do their bodies want to store it as fat or their bodies want to, um, you know, burn it as energy. And then that's a much different conception. Uh, and it's one that the obesity research community has quite literally ignored for 90 years now.
1: Yeah, it's amazing to me that, uh, like, th- some of these things have remained as the conventional wisdom in spite of so much evidence and in, in having it explained like this understanding that understanding those fundamental differences between someone who's lean and someone who carries more weight um, what can we take from that that's practical I know you talk a lot about this in the case for keto um, use that to our advantage to start to shift that and to get toward metabolic health for people who are struggling with excess weight because um, and I'll to be vulnerable here that's something that was a struggle for me for many many years with Hashimoto's and I had hormone components I had to figure out, Um, As well as stress components, which I think also really come into play. But how can we use these, like this information that we're finding, to our advantage to help solve the problem?
0: Well, and that's the um, that's the key. There's a, you know, what we've been taught. What those of us who struggle with their weight are, are taught is we're supposed to know the mathematics of obesity. You know, if you gain, if you overeat by 500 calories a day, that's a pound of fat a week and if you want to lose a pound of fat a week you have to undereat by 500 calories a day i I read many books while i was writing this i read memoirs by people who had struggled with obesity Uh, tommy tomlinson is a wonderful sports writer wrote a uh, a book called the uh the elephant in the room which is one of the great titles um uh discussing his struggle with obesity his whole life uh roxanne gay the the uh a wonderful writer wrote a book called hunger about her personal struggle with obesity and they both um say in almost the same words i I had to learn the mathematics and the mathematics was you know this eat 500 calories a day less and they'll lose a pound a week and then they had to learn that the mathematics didn't help them any and the argument that i'm making and now you know for a few tens of thousands of physicians worldwide is if you're struggling with obesity, you have to learn the the hormones you have to learn the endocrinology, which sounds complex and complicated because virtually every hormone in your body has some effect on fat accumulation, but the hormone that directly links your diet to your weight is insulin, and this is a hormone that's we think of as being. You know, disrupted in diabetes. Um, type 2 diabetics are known as being insulin resistant. Their bodies are resistant to the action of insulin, so they have to secrete more insulin to control their blood sugar. Uh, people who suffer from type 1 diabetes uh, have an absence of uh, insulin, so they have to take insulin uh, injections to control their blood sugar but insulin also regulates fat accumulation. That's just a fundamental part of its job. And when we, when insulin is elevated, when we eat carbohydrate rich foods that stimulates insulin secretion, the insulin goes up and our body store calories as fat. So to understand the sort of hormonal regulation of fat accumulation basically means two things. First of all, you're storing fat when insulin is elevated and to get fat out of your fat tissue, you have to minimize your insulin levels. Um, this is something I also didn't write enough about in my earlier books because it was a level of complication I didn't think was necessary. But researchers who study fat metabolism who study fat tissue who are different by the way than researchers who think of themselves as studying obesity so the researchers who study fat metabolism talk about your fat tissue as being exquisitely sensitive to the hormone insulin so this is a phrase that comes up all the time even in the research exquisitely sensitive so if there's a the slightest bit of insulin in your circulation your fat tissue will hold on to fat It'll hold on to the calories it's stored. And if you want it fuel your body, you're going to have to eat carbohydrates to keep your body running. And this is why when you go on sort of low calorie diets, but you don't cut carbohydrates, you end up being hungry all the time. Every couple of hours you're snacking and eating because your body needs the carbohydrates for fuel. So if you want to get fat out of your fat tissue, you have to minimize insulin. That's sort of the message. And that level of insulin, that's going to be different for everybody. But the the heavier we are and the longer we've been heavier, the lower your insulin has to be. And when your insulin is very low, that's when you're mobilizing fat from your fat tissue. And if you're mobilizing that fat and using it for fuel, your liver will be producing ketones out of it. And now you're in ketosis and that's a keto diet. So the ultimate argument is that for many of us, If we really want to be lean, the only way we can control our weight through diet is by minimizing insulin and that's eating a ketogenic diet. Anything else will for the most part fail us. It'll either leave us too hungry or it won't have enough effect on our weight. So, and this isn't true of everyone. Many people can just cut out some carbs or cut out the sort of the the, the most processed carbohydrates and control their weight. But for many of us who are overweight and obese, if we really want to get lean, that's that's kind of the hormonal message.
1: Yeah, that makes complete sense. And that was definitely something I noticed as well. I, I had to do a lot of experimentation because it seems like there is um, very much individualization and personalization when it comes to what that specific amount of carbohydrates that's tolerated is or what types. And some people seem to do well with some variation in there. You mentioned the hormone side and what I found really interesting in in my own journey of this is that when I started really tracking, I found I actually had to eat more, but I had to be careful of where that came from. I needed more protein and fat, but in all of my efforts to lose weight for so long, I've realized I had, I was over dieting and I was under eating, which was signaling a bunch of stress hormones in my body and not getting enough things like protein and fat. And I know that you've talked about this, but we have this almost epidemic of people being undernourished, but still overweight. So they're not getting the things their body needs, even though they're actually eating enough calories. And I think that's such an important mindset shift for all of us to make is to not think of food in terms of just fuel as calories, but for fuel as feeding our hormones and the micronutrients that we need and signaling the body and building the body with all of the components that, that go into food. Can you talk a little bit about that, about the component of how people can be undernourished and still overweight? And then also how there can be times when we need, for me, it was like I needed more protein. I was below the minimum I needed. So I was sending stress signals to my body, even though I thought I was dieting and trying to lose weight.
0: Yeah, and this is an area where individual variation really does play a role. So, um, yeah, it's uh, one of the the sort of defense mechanisms now of the nutrition community to this sort of low-carb, high-fat ketogenic diet movement is that everybody's different. And it's also complicated, and some people... Just there's no way you can have a prescription for everyone. But again, one of the arguments I'm making in this book is that there are, there are some, some facts that are universal. So again, the, the idea that insulin uh, controls fat accumulation, that's just textbook science. Um, that's, and it's true of all of us. But we'll all, you know, our insulin response to the foods we eat will be different and there you'll get individual variation. Um, The amount of protein you need or the amount of, one of the issues with protein is that about 60% of the, so protein is uh, composed of amino acids and these amino acids, about 60% of them will be converted to glucose or blood sugar and when you eat, and then that will stimulate an insulin response. So for some people, a sufficiently low insulin level will require just minimal amounts of protein basically so they'll have to get rid of the carbs in their diet and by which i mean the, the, you know the sugars starches and grains uh green leafy vegetables are always fine and they're a great source of all these other you know vitamins and micronutrients that we need but you know, what happened in this country, and this was something I documented in my first book, was when we shifted, when the heart disease research community decided on the basis of very ambiguous evidence that dietary fat was the cause of heart disease and saturated fat was the cause of heart disease. And in the 1980s, they shifted the whole country onto this low-fat, high-carb, high-protein diet. And the carbohydrates we were consuming were particularly deleterious in the sense that they were, um, well, sugar, which is, you know, empty calories, it's what it's called, but it's got deleterious effects or toxic effects, some people say, because of the carbohydrates it's composed of, but there's also, there's no vitamins at all in there. The kind of carbs we were eating to replace the fat in our diet were things like potatoes and, and, and pasta and breakfast cereals, unless they're, and, and breads, unless they're fortified with, you know, vitamins and minerals are pretty much absent anything healthy. So yeah, you could eat these foods and have a deficiency of the necessary, well, the necessary fats, the necessary vitamins, minerals, and think you're eating a healthy diet. And as you're getting heavier and heavier because of the effect of the carbohydrates, you your response, what the public health authorities are telling you to do, and your doctor's telling you to do, and your friends are telling you to do, and your parents are telling you to do, is eat less. Right? So now, not only are you deficient in in these necessary aspects of a healthy diet now you're eating even less food hoping that will help control the weight and so the result is sort of metabolic disasters and we see it all over today with the you know again obesity has exploded and type 2 diabetes type 2 diabetes rates have increased 700 percent in 60 years which is i mean should be terrifying to people So, you know, again, all of this can be fixed. It doesn't, it takes sacrifice to do it. There's no easy way out of this problem personally or, you know, on a societal level, but it can be all be fixed.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think things like this are so important as tools for each of us to have to start resolving that in each of our own lives with like all of these factors that you've mentioned. And I'm really fond of saying at the end of the day, we are each our own primary healthcare provider and we should absolutely work with experts who are specialists in different areas or who can be partners in that. But at the end of the day, our healthcare starts with what we put in our mouth each morning and the sleep that we get at night and, and all of those lifestyle factors. And so I love that you make this tangible and doable for all of us to be able to take control back of that and, and start seeing, ways that we can improve this in our own lives, because that's how the change happens for each of us. And also societally is when we all take ownership there. i read recently that 88% of Americans have um, some marker of metabolic dysfunction, which means only 12% of Americans don't have a marker of metabolic dysfunction. And like you mentioned, we know things like obesity and diabetes are still on the rise. So I feel like this is more important than ever. And we've talked about keto, but I also would love to it may seem a little bit fundamental, but let's define what that actually means. Because I think there's also a lot of misinformation when it comes to keto. And we have the bacon and cheese version of keto. And then we have, I know people vegetarian wondering if they could still be keto. So when you talk about a ketogenic diet, can you explain what the the factors and variables are that make it that?
0: Okay, well, let me, um, I want to backtrack just one second to something you had said about your own Sort of journey in this, which is the very common one and very important. Um, you had metabolic issues, and you started doing your homework, going down the rabbit hole is a phrase I learned a lot. So one of the things I did for this book, the case for keto, I mentioned that there are a few. I, my estimate is a few tens of thousands of physicians worldwide who now buy into this way of thinking. So. And I interviewed about 120 of them for this book, Around the World, um, and then another 20 uh, chiropractors and nutritionists and dentists. And uh, I wanted to understand their challenges and their experience and why they embrace this dietary philosophy and what the challenges were to their patients. And the interesting thing is they had all gone through the same experience you had. About uh, 1998, Malcolm Gladwell, the famous uh, journalist, uh, Tipping Point, uh, wrote a a piece for the New Yorker called the Pima Paradox about obesity. And he, he kind of joke that every obesity every diet book had the same formula and that formula was a physician is struggling with his weight or some health issue and they conventional thinking doesn't solve it and so they do their homework they go to the library or they bury themselves in their textbooks and they learn that maybe there's another way to do it and they try it and it works and then they try it on their patients and it works and then they Now they're teaching it in this diet book from which they're going to make a lot of money. So Malcolm, when he discussed this, referred to it as a conversion experience that is being described by the physician. And the truth is, or the reality, one of the things I realized writing this book is that the only way people ever come to the conclusions is if they've gone through a conversion experience like this. So if you're a lean physician, and your patients are lean and you're telling your patients they should eat a conventional healthy diet, which is, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, lean meat uh, in moderation, uh, nuts, uh, legumes, you know, we, all, we hear it all the time, not too much, as Michael Pollan says. Um, so you're lean and your patients are lean, that's what you're telling them, there's nothing to fix. There's no experiments to be made. There's no observations to be made other than that what the conventional wisdom seems to work for you and for them. But if your patients are overweight or diabetic, becoming more and more overweight and diabetic with each passing year, as is the case for anyone who practices internal medicine or family medicine in America today. And if you're getting, gaining weight and you know that you're doing what you're supposed to do, then you, the natural thing to do is to look for something else here to start this process of experimentation until so you look around for other approaches now with the internet it's all too easy to find virtually everything so a lot of the physicians I had interviewed they'd all gone through this without exception as have I as have you and they tried Vegan diets and they tried vegetarian diets and they tried Mediterranean diets. A lot of them were athletes. Some of them were world class athletes who had gotten heavier and diabetic anyway. And it's only when they came upon this particular solution that they got healthy. And this particular solution, again, in the book, I call it, I use the phrase low carbohydrate, high fat slash ketogenic diet. And I say it, it rolls off no tongs but i think it's important because i'm not sure how important the ketogenic aspect of it is and the great majority of the physicians i interviewed never checked ketones in their patient's blood they never talked about ketones what they wanted to do was get their patients off carbohydrate rich foods sugars starches grains and get their calories from green vegetables and you know fat rich ideally animal products and we'll have to talk about that. So animal products are, you know, meat, fish, fowl, mostly fat calories, some protein calories. We, we tend to talk about it like in cooking shows, they'll talk about it as the protein part of the dish, but that protein part of the dish is typically mostly fat, unless it's a skinless chicken breast so when you do that for most people that will lower insulin a lot and you will get significant weight loss and when you lower insulin and lower blood sugar you also that that significant weight loss goes along with a whole host of healthy changes to your metabolic state so your blood pressure will come down and your blood sugar comes down and your lipid profile your cholesterol and your triglycerides will improve and so in effect virtually everything gets better you you know if if what i in these physicians believe is correct, by removing the carbohydrates, you're removing the source of the metabolic disorder and you're getting healthier. So you're not going on a diet, you're sort of fixing what ails you by removing the cause of it. And the problem the implication also is you have to stay on that diet for life because if you ever return it. You know, if you ever go back to eating carbs, you'll go back to getting fat or having your blood sugar get out of control, your lipids you know increasing your risk of heart disease. But the key is whether or not you're in technically in ketosis, and I realize my book is called The Case for Keto, but I'm not actually sure how important it is to, to have measurable ketones in your blood what you want to do is abstain from these carbohydrate-rich foods and replace those calories with sort of fat-rich foods, exact kind of foods, regrettably, that we were all told not to eat for the past 40 years.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And I love that you brought up the cholesterol and triglycerides idea, because I think for far too long, like you've talked about too, those things have been tied to animal products. And I think this is another really important conversation to have right now because we've seen this trend of a lot of people avoiding animal products and moving away from them, especially people who have heart concerns or who are worried about their cholesterol and triglycerides that I know just purely anecdotally, like I said, I now eat a very much real food-based diet that is most days very low carb, um, but I do consume a lot of animal products and my cholesterol triglycerides have never been in healthier ranges. They're absolutely stellar, but let's talk about that a little bit more. Like, is this a concern? What do you say to people who have worried about these kind of foods because of that?
0: Well, and this is even uh, when I talk to these physicians and I ask them, what's the biggest challenge that your patients have to accept? Uh, the challenge is accepting that fat and saturated fat isn't going to kill them. And so red meat isn't going to kill them and processed meat isn't going to kill them and eggs and butter aren't going to kill them. This is what, Started me off on this research path. So I, I, in the late 90s, I did two investigative articles for the journal Science. Um, the first one was on actually salt and high blood pressure, and it took me nine months to do. And the second one was on dietary fat and heart disease. And the reason I did the second one is because when I did the first one on salt, one of the worst scientists I'd ever interviewed in my life and my obsession is good science and bad science that's what i'd been writing about for 15 years previously one of the worst scientists i ever interviewed took credit for getting americans to go on this low-fat diet that we'd been all eating so when i got off the phone with him i called up my editor at science and i said when i'm done writing about salt i'm going to write about fat because that was one of the worst scientists i ever interviewed just took credit for getting us eat what we're." You know the low-fat diet, and I don't know what the story is, but I can bet if he was involved, there's a good story there. So I spent a year working on this fat story, and it turned out that our beliefs about the dangers of fat in the diet—and again, back then I had no bias. I was—I had not written any nutrition books. I wasn't a—you know—hadn't told anyone how to eat except some friends who I had suggested go on low-fat diets. From the 1960s through the 1980s, the researchers, well, first they generated this hypothesis that dietary fat and saturated fat cause heart disease by raising, first it was all cholesterol, total cholesterol, then it was LDL cholesterol, which became known as the bad cholesterol. And they did a series of clinical trials to see if people got healthier on low-fat diets or um, on diets where you replace the saturated fat from animal products from like butter with polyunsaturated fats from seed oils or corn oil. And the studies failed to confirm the hypothesis. But what they did manage to demonstrate in a $150 million clinical trial that went from the mid-70s to 1984 was that if you put lower people's LDL cholesterol by drugs, they will live a week or two longer than if you don't. (laughs) And the research community had spent so much money on this trial that when they got that result, they had to justify doing the study. So their justification was to say, not only should we all lower our LDL cholesterol by drugs if necessary, but we should all lower it by diet regardless, even though it wasn't even a diet study. And one of the problems is diets do a lot of things other than manipulate LDL cholesterol. so for instance, when you eat uh say, let's say we have two meals, and one is full of you're getting uh, five hundred calories from you know butter and yogurt and the hamburger, and the other one you get those same five hundred calories from the whole wheat bread and pasta eating that other one, the whole wheat bread pasta, your LDL cholesterol will be lower, but your triglycerides will be higher, which is bad for you. And your HDL cholesterol, the good cholesterol will be lower, which is bad for you. And your insulin levels will be higher, which is bad for you. And your blood sugar will be higher, which is bad for you. And your waist circumference will be bigger, which is bad for you. So, um, but the, community didn't care about any of that. All they cared about was LDL cholesterol because they had drugs, statins particularly, that could treat LDL cholesterol. So they put this whole country on this path where all we focus on in a healthy diet is the amount of calories in the LDL cholesterol. And when you eat an animal product-rich diet for a significant portion of the population, I, I don't know what that is, it could be a third, say, their LDL cholesterol will go up. Everything else will get better, everything else, but their LDL cholesterol will get go up and for that reason, and a, a, another story about the science of epidemiology that's probably too long and complicated for us to go through, the vegetarian movement in America, a group of you know uh, individuals who have very strong ethical beliefs about the immorality of eating animals and and raising animals for our livelihood, embraced that science and used it to communicate this message that the bad aspects of our diet is the animal foods in the diet, not the sugar, not the refined flour, not the pastas, not all these other foods that individuals always knew would make them fatter until the 1960s, it was conventional wisdom that carbohydrates were fattening. They shifted the conversation and made fat-rich animal products the problem. And again, they did it with all the best of intentions. Um, The ethical issues involved with eating animals are serious and not to be dismissed. But again, one of the arguments I'm making in this book is that some of us, if we want to be healthy and if we want our children to be healthy, And by some of us it could be two-thirds of the population then what we want to eat is a a carbohydrate restricted high-fat diet and that can be done vegan and it can be done vegetarian but it's extremely difficult to do it's effortless when you're eating animal products because animals are fat and protein they don't stay store a little bit of carbohydrates. We all, like humans, store a little bit of carbohydrates as glycogen, but it's maybe 5% of calories in an animal will come from carbohydrates. So it's effortless to eat as our Paleolithic ancestors did. And when we do that, we tend to get healthy. So it's, it's a conflict, and it's one that we have problems with because there's also a very serious discussion about the role of... Uh, uh, livestock um, agriculture in climate change and one that we all have to consider seriously but again for some of us you know if you want to be healthy these are pretty much the foods that we should eat more importantly if we want our children to be healthy to grow up without this metabolic disruption of obesity and diabetes um, animal products may be necessary
1: yeah, absolutely. I think that very much needs to be a part of the conversation as well. This podcast is sponsored by Flying Embers, a better for you alcohol brand that brews hard kombucha with probiotic powered hard seltzer. All of their products are zero sugar, zero carbs, USDA certified organic, and brewed with live probiotics and adaptogens. They're also all keto, gluten-free, vegan and low in calories, so they're a great option for a functional, low-calorie drink that is delicious. I love their flavors. They have some really unique ones like grapefruit thyme and guava jalapeno, and I'm a big fan of their clementine hibiscus. All of their products are artfully crafted with a dry fermentation process, which gives the hard kombucha a perfectly balanced natural sweetness that tastes amazing despite having zero sugar and carbs. We've worked out an exclusive deal just for you. Receive 15% off your whole order. To claim this deal, go to flyingembers.com forward slash wellnessmama and use code wellnessmama at checkout. That's F-L-Y-I-N-G-E-M-B-E-R-S.com slash wellnessmama. And the discount is only available on their website. Will be applied at checkout. Um, they're also available nationwide at grocery stores, anywhere you find beer and hard seltzers. But check out where to find them and get the discount flyingembers.com forward slash mama. This podcast is brought to you by Wellness, my new personal care company that is based on the recipes I've been making at home in my own kitchen for over a decade. Many clean products simply don't work. And this is exactly why I spent the last decade researching and perfecting recipes for products that not only eliminate toxic chemicals, but that contain ingredients that work better than their conventional alternatives and that nourish your body from the outside in. I'm so excited to finally get to share these products with you. And I wanted to tell you all about our brand new dry shampoo, which is our newest product. It can be used various ways including, you can sprinkle in clean hair to add volume and also extend the time between washes. You can sprinkle it in uh, hair that hasn't been washed in a day or two to absorb oil or sweat, and you can work it into color treated hair to maintain color by not having to wash as often. It contains oil absorbing kale and clay and volume boosting tapioca, which work together to refresh hair at the roots. Lavender oil and cactus flower help to balance the scalp and to keep the hair's natural pH. And we added hibiscus for healthy hair growth. You can check it out and try it at wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end. And my tip is to grab a bundle and save with the built-in discount that comes with a bundle. Or if you subscribe and save, you can save on any order. So again, check it out, wellness.com. Another thing that often comes up from my audience anytime there's a conversation about keto is um, the idea or the resistance of that women potentially need more carbs than men or that this doesn't work in the same way for women because of hormonal considerations. So I'd love to address that a little bit. Is keto beneficial in the same way for women? And are there any special considerations that women need to know when it comes to following a keto diet?
0: Okay. So anecdotally, I would say clearly there's a difference. So women, when you look at how hormones regulate fat accumulation, so insulin drives fat accumulation. Women, because of pregnancy, you need to accumulate fat when you get pregnant so that you can nurse the child when the baby's born. And so women have, you know, the female sex hormones and male sex hormones also play major roles in Uh, Fat accumulation, not just whether you accumulate fat, but where you accumulate fat. That's why men tend to accumulate fat above the waist and women tend to accumulate fat below the waist. Um, The fat accumulation below the waist is pretty much dominated by the the female sex hormones, estrogen particularly, and above the waist it's dominated by insulin and testosterone in men. So these hormones tend to uh, work to liberate fat from fat tissue but they cycle and then as you get older and women that as you secrete less and less estrogen uh, beginning prior to menopause and then through menopause you'll accumulate fat independent of how much you're eating it's just the estrogen is working to keep fat accumulation down and then as you uh, have less of it in your circulation your body responds by accumulating more fat and it's it's fascinating because this was a well-known phenomena in animals research i my research i found it in you know in books on uh, hormones in the 1920s written by experts that would talk about how if you remove the ovaries from a female animal that animal will get fat and you know it was clear this happened in ovariectomies and in 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 women as well and Yet these obesity researchers are insisting that if if women gained weight during menopause or after menopause, it was because they were now sitting around playing bridge with their lady friends all day and eating bonbons. And I wish I was joking, by the way, but that's the the kind of discussion you can find in the literature. So um, men don't have those issues. So when we lower insulin, there are no real counter-regulatory hormones working against this. And again, anecdotally, it's very easy for men to lose weight almost effortlessly. And one of the stories I heard from physicians were who were treating uh, patients, and even some, uh, I interviewed people who run uh, obesity clinics particularly, and they would say they'd have women come in and the women would You want to lose weight, and they'd prescribe this low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diet, and they'd go home, and they'd start cooking this way, and the husband would go along with it just to humor the wife, and the husband would lose 50 pounds, and the wife would lose 10. We probably damaged as many marriages as we helped with this kind of thinking. The flip side is there's probably no other way to do it except by diet, except by lowering. So there's no Unfortunately, there's no other shortcut that will work. And again, when I talk to these physicians, even though they would tell me those kind of anecdotal stories, they would also say that they believed that it worked for women. At least it would make everyone healthy. And the way I talk about it in the books is the leanest you can be will be on the diet with the least carbohydrates in general there's always again we talked about individual variation there's exceptions to everything but for the most part the leanest you could be is a diet without and then the question is do women have more trouble because they're for whatever reason culturally or evolutionarily less inclined to live on you know ribeyes all day long if that's what it takes i mean you tell uh, a most men in america and you your diet is, you know, ribeye steaks, eggs, and bacon, Uh, they'll be relatively happy. They might miss their beer. But other than that, it sounds great. Um, At least, uh, again, speaking anecdotally, the women I know are not, um, can't go there or won't go there. My wife, by the way, is mostly vegetarian and we have these conversations all the time. in fact, we had to spend, uh, several tens of thousands of dollars building a deck outside so I could cook my meat outside, even in the midst of winter. Luckily, we live in California, so it's just raining because she couldn't take a house that smells of meat. And so I do think it's more difficult. On the other hand, these physicians said if people stick it, they will get healthier. So if type 2 diabetes will effectively go into remission on these diets, um, if one of the ways this was phrased to me by a a, a physician in Montreal uh, Evelyn Bordeur Roy she said when she talks to her patients and describes what she's going to do she says you know and these are obese mostly obese diabetic patients uh, mostly women um she says i look i could i could put you on pills or i could teach you how to eat and if she puts them on pills gonna, the going dosage is going to have to be increased with each you know, passing few years and different pills are going to have to be tried because diabetes in particular is a progressive chronic disease. It gets worse. Um, But if we can change how you eat, whether or not you lose, let's say you're 70 pounds overweight, whether or not you lose all 70 pounds or only 50 of them or only 30 of them, we could make you healthy in the process.
1: Yeah, that, yeah, so helpful to have those tools in your hand and not to get in that long term medication cycle when you don't have to. Another thing that's gotten more popular recently and I'm curious about your take on it is the ability for people without diabetes to be able to use a continuous glucose monitor and actually gauge in real time what their glucose response is, what their fasting glucose is, which seems like at least somewhat valuable data when it comes to this equation about if you know what your how your body's responding to different foods, how much how many carbohydrates can you handle that keep you in a healthy threshold? I'm curious if you encountered any of that research in your work on this book or what your thoughts are on things like using, whether it be a regular glucose monitor or continuous glucose monitor to have our individualized data to learn from.
0: Well, it's interesting. And first of all, I'm staring at a box, uh, Freestyle Libra, which is one of these continuous glucose monitors that I, I had a picked up a couple months ago because I wanted to wear it and see what happens to my own blood sugar over the course of the day. I haven't actually put it on yet. This is clearly changing how people eat. So I'm also, I'm working on my new book, The Case for Keto is coming out December 29th, but I'm working on my next book, which is about diabetes. So both type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes and the history and In that world, uh, particularly, the continuous glucose monitors are changing the world. And these are devices, they're about the size of a silver dollar now. You can slap it on your arm, you wear it for two weeks, you can read your blood sugar every five minutes on your smartphone. It's uh, the kind of technological advance that then will drive paradigm shifts, changing how people think, because, yeah, I mean, once you see... What happens to your blood sugar with every food you eat, and if your goal is to maintain a stable blood sugar, particularly in type 1 diabetes where they they lack insulin, uh, what people find out is the, they can it used to be that you would go and so you'd see your endocrinologist say four times a year, and you'd take in a record from your the, the kind of blood uh, glucose monitor the old-fashioned kind and so he could print out a record of your blood sugar over a couple months and he would sit down the patient with diabetes would sit down with him and the and i heard this story a lot the endocrinologists will say well what happened here and i'll point to some surge in blood sugar what did you eat here and they said it was like you know going in to see your teacher after you've just gotten you know, your guidance counselor after you've gotten c-minuses on all your homework and come away miserable and then now you've got a device where every patient can see it for themselves so oh I ate a banana and look what happened I eat if I have a high protein meal for dinner look what happens to my blood sugar five hours later or in the middle of the night while I'm sleeping and so now this process of self-experimentation becomes almost immediate because you're getting immediate feedback and I think one of the shifts when you talked about the paradigm shifts you felt reading my books, one of them was just a shift of going from worrying about the dietary fat that you're eating and your LDL cholesterol to thinking in terms of blood sugar and insulin. And the CGMs just immediately work as sort of behavioral modification devices, as well as because, you know, if you want to keep your blood sugar, if you care enough to keep your blood sugar under control, which means better metabolic health, which means lower heart disease risk, lower cancer risk, probably lower dementia risk, then you're gonna find that the carb foods are not your friends and fat-rich foods are. And that will shift how we think. Again, I don't know how much people are willing to make their these sacrifices and how much some people actually care. You and I live in a world where we care and the people we know care, but we also live in a world where 15 or 70% of the population still smokes and every one of them must know that it's shortening their lives by doing it. So not everyone cares enough.
1: That's true. But I think to your point, I think we're seeing much more, thanks to your work and and others, like widespread knowledge about this. And I think we are seeing that shift start to happen. I think more and more people are, are willing to make the changes and stick with them. And like you pointed out, once you start making these adaptations and your hormones start adjusting, it gets so much easier because you're not fighting that carbon sugar cycle in your body and all of the hormones that go with it, which are literal hormones that were built for our survival, but very hard to battle with just willpower um, when you're in that kind of vicious cycle. So I think, like I said, works like this are so important, especially right now, knowing that obesity and diabetes and any kind of metabolic dysfunction increases the risk of complications from any other kind of illness or health problem. And so I think there couldn't be a more timely time to continue this conversation and to give people these tools. And I'm so grateful that you are doing that. Like I mentioned, you are one of my favorite authors in health and wellness and your works are so comprehensive and, and really have been paradigm shifting for me. So I will make sure all of your your books are linked in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm, especially your new one, the case for keto. And some somewhat related question I love to ask at the end of interviews is if there is a book or a number of books besides your own that have had a dramatic impact on your life and that you recommend, and if so, what they are and why.
0: Um, yeah, I saw, uh, that was prepared to answer this. It's surprisingly difficult. Uh, So in terms of the book, if we're asking what book had the most influence on my life, um, I would have to say it was The Phantom Tollbooth, which is a book I probably read 20 times between the age of seven and the age of 20 every time. We got sick as kids, you know, our mother would make us chicken soup and we'd read The Phantom Tollbooth and it's a book written by Norman Juster and it's, uh, you know, considered one of the great children's books ever. But what it did was it taught me, it made thinking about the world something that I simply wanted to do. Never to stop thinking about what you're doing, why you're doing, how you're doing it, what the different perspectives are of what you think? It also made life fun. It's a gas. but I think like I said that that was the book that that if any drove my um, learning experience in the diet world, it's kind of interesting because um in the nutrition world, uh, you know when I did my research as a journalist, it was interviewing quite literally hundreds and hundreds of people and reading the papers. Um, and there were really no books. Well, that's not true. There were books like Atkins Diet Revolution and uh, The Cholesterol Conspiracy. And, but these were books that we had been sort of indoctrinated to think of as quackery. So some of what I ended up having to do in my research was in kind of fact check those books to see if what they said was correct. So it didn't change the way I thought, even though I ended up thinking like to some extent, like those books thought. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a kid's book, Phantom Tollbooth, the Phantom Tollbooth.
1: That is a new one. I'll make sure that is linked in the show notes as well. it
0: should also read it to your kids, if the ones who are still young enough to be read to. It'll change your life.
1: I love it. Well, like I said, all the things we've talked about, I know you have so many resources, um, not just your books, but you have all your various works online. I will link to all of those. You guys definitely go check Gary out, keep learning from him. Um, So much, so much great information. And like I said, multiple times, I think this is such a timely and important book right now. Highly encourage you guys to grab a copy. And Gary, thank you for your time today. I know how busy you are and I'm honored that you took the time to be here today.
0: Uh, well, thank you very much, Katie. I really, I I love what you're doing and it's, it's it's been a pleasure. I'm very grateful.
1: Thank you. And thanks as always to all of you for listening, for sharing your most valuable asset, your time with us today. We're so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me?